Okay, so let's begin. We're going to share the message. Um, our, um, our passage today are going to be in the book of Philippians, mainly going to cover chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. For I know how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the sermon we're going to talk about today, the title, I actually put a title, what does it take for us to be content? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, um, God, I'm just grateful. I'm, I'm really thankful for how amazing a God you are. I'm thankful that you didn't forsake us, that out of your abounding love, you reached down from heaven to earth to bring us into relationship with you. And of that same love, you loved us not to just leave us where we were, but to, to bring us through a relationship with you, to change us, to make us more like your son, Jesus. Jesus, you're the perfect example. In some ways, I can't imagine how you could be as you were here on this earth with all the divinity, all the power of the universe at your command, that you could humble yourself so low to choose to be with us who are so unworthy. But you did, and you showed us, showed us what real love is like. And by being the perfect example, you showed us what it's like to live without sin. While it seems impossible to us, Lord, it is possible with you, and through your strength, we can live the life that you've laid for us. So, Father, I pray for each person here that we surrender more to you, trust you more, rely upon you more, follow you with even more love and abandon, that your life may be lived through each of us. Because, Jesus, you deserve the very maximum glory, every bit of honor, Everything that we have and belong belongs to you. We brought nothing in and we will take nothing out except a relationship with you. So, And use us as a body. Thank you for this body. Use us as a body to reach out to those in need, those who are suffering. Instead of being caught up in our own thoughts and considerations, help us to see the needs of others, to show your love. And if they don't know you, to show how much you love them as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. So first I'm going to talk a little bit about our condition. We are all born discontented. If you look at a baby, comes out of the womb, what does it first do? It cries. Every need that it wants, it's crying. Crying when it's hungry, crying when it has a poopy diaper, crying for everything. And it's driven by all its wants. You know, I, we were at the men's breakfast yesterday, and I got to see J.J. moving around. And you can see he just what he wants. He just goes right after. They say, oh, no, don't give him that uh, napkin because he'll eat it because he wants it. And if you don't get, you'll see as the kids get older, they don't get what they want. 
they let you know. We don't call it the terrible twos for nothing. Um, they, they can go crazy because they get frustrated not getting what they want. And you'll see some of them. You've seen kids who try and throw tantrums, crying on the floor, making a huge ruckus. Or even worse, if you're a parent and you've taken your kids shopping, when they want what they want and they don't get what they want, they'll cry out and they're like, I have a job to do. I'm here to get something. What you're doing is causing me a problem. They know that. It's a formulation. If I cry enough, maybe you'll get me that candy. Maybe you'll get me that toy to keep me shut up so I can. And so driven by our wants, and if we don't get what we want, we cry out. Unfortunately, as adults, we tend to do the same. So that, that's natural to us. That's natural to us to want what we want and to express to ourselves and others our frustration our discontent when we don't get it. So the problem is, though, if you know that with a child, if you give that child what they want, it doesn't stop. They want more, more and more. And we know that with parents who have this kind of laissez-faire attitude where they don't really care or very indulgent, these kids become, frankly, spoiled rats, rude, entitled, selfish, inconsiderate. The whole world revolves around them and really nobody really wants to be with them because their focus is solely on themselves. And when they don't get what they want, when the world doesn't give them what they want, they cry out, all rooted from being discontented. Good parents, and you'll know them, will discipline their kids. Um, a family here at church, I got to see that when a child came forward and that child wanted something right there and then and was appropriately asking permission. This one moment, I'm talking right now. Let me finish what I have to say. Then I'll address your concern. You could tell the child was a little discontented, not getting what they wanted at that moment. But they learned and we have to teach them. So can discontentment is automatic. Contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Okay? To be content doesn't happen to us naturally. Our natural default will always be to cry out that something that we don't like. Unfortunately, also, with, our, with what's happening in the world, as parents, especially my generation, we were able to do a lot and we tended to be able to provide a lot. So because we didn't have much growing up, we wanted to ensure that our kids didn't suffer, thinking that that would be better for them because suffering is bad. That's where we think suffering's bad and comfort is good. And we provided a lot for them that they did not learn how to be content with little. I heard a pastor talked about how when kids talk about a Christmas list and you look at the list of all the things they want, especially in America, most children get 90% of their wish list. 90% of their wish list. As adults, he used an example. He's in a, he was a huge mega church in, in Louisville and he talked about we may want a second home, a vacation in you know, the Mexican or the French Riviera, you know, a boat, a reserved parking spot at church. And um, he said, 
we barely get 10% of what we'd like to have on our wish list. And then he laughingly said, and I can tell you one thing you're not going to get, referring to the reserve parking lot, because they literally had to bus people in to get them into the, into the uh, sanctuary. Um, our discontent in the past few years has increased. I see it from where I work. People come in, they're unhappy. We see a lot of anxiety with what's happening with COVID. I know there was a tension here. Do we open? Do we close? Are we going to get sick? Do we mask? Not mask? Do we get vaccinated? The number of prescriptions for people for anxiety and depression has increased by 30% in the past three years. Um, you look at the tension, the discontent we have, those on one side who are discontented because we're not doing enough to address social equity and climate control. Those on the other side saying we're not doing enough to address the economy and inflation. And each side thinks that the other side's the problem. There's discontent. We see the news. It's hard not to look at the news and not become unhappy, discontented, worried, concerned, not settled, not at peace. It's, I can't even look at the news very much. I look at like one website, but if I go around to that, I find it sets seeds of discontentment within me. And what we don't realize is that our desires are what creates that. And I'm going to talk about three areas. First, an area that really creates discontent is greed. We want more. I've talked about that a little bit before. One of the things I really appreciate in Ghana is how little that they have. And they were content. I'm going, wow, we didn't have very much. And I realized how much even us, because we're there and everybody has cell phone or Wi-Fi and everybody's on their phones. The Americans are on their phones. None of the Ghanaians are on their phones. Even the very few even of the adults who had phones were on their phones. But the Americans were like riveted to our phone. And God humbled me because for three full days, my phone was completely frozen. I couldn't reset it. I couldn't do anything. It completely didn't work. I didn't have the phone at all. And I had notes. We were supposed to share something about somebody. What, do you, what, what is God speaking to you about that person to encourage them? And I had things on my notes on my phone, and I lost it. So I had to wing it at the time. But it was like, okay, I'm really dependent on that and how much we like. And then we want the newest. And the, our desires just increase. So... I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is an iPhone 11. I need to upgrade to the latest iPhone because this doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Or I want the new iWatch because there's a new one that's coming out that's nicer, you know. And, you know, I can afford it, so why can't I get it? Should I be able to get it? Um, I was talking with um, a brother. We were looking, talking about um, vehicles, and, you know, my truck acts up at times, and we're talking about different vehicles out there, and I just realized that conversation just brought out the idea, you know, my truck's kind of old. It's 22 years old. I can get a new one. I deserve a new one. You know, it's reasonable. It's not being crazy. I'll get it secondhand, so it's not going to be that bad. It's not, you know, the way that we rationalize, the way that we think that it's okay to indulge in things of want, not asking the question, is this what the Lord wants? Matthew 19, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, 
Assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the things that's readily available, things that we take for granted. When you're, we have good shelter. We have good transportation. We have reliable energy all the time. I can turn the light switch on. I don't doubt. Oh, when something doesn't work, it's abnormal. It's like, what's wrong? If you're delayed, I remember they're talking, if you're delayed on the tarmac on an airplane, what's wrong? What's, when are they going to get going? What's happening? I'm like, okay, I'm living at a time when I get to fly to the other side of the world in like 10 hours. In the last 100 years that happened, that's never happened in history. If you look at kings from the 1800s, they never got to do what I got to do. It's amazing the things that we do. And I'm frustrated because we have an extra 30-minute delay because I can't get what I want. And that's the thing. And we have the media continually telling us over and over again that what you have is not enough. That's why television advertisements, you need to be in a nicer vehicle or you need to have a nice vacation. Or at 55, you're supposed to be on a sailboat in the Caribbean retired living off your money because that's what it's all about. We live for retirement. Like the idea of retirement is biblical. Um, yeah, I don't see it anywhere in the Bible, but it's all rooted on still on greed and on ourself. And the problem with greed is it's never satisfied. Look at First Timothy 6, 9, and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which draw which drawn men in destruction and perdition which drown men in per- destruction and perdition for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through many sorrows and i've shared this before we don't get it by the ways of the world we are all rich by the ways of the world, we are all rich. By the ways of eternity, of all the time that man has been on this planet, we are rich. If you look at all the human beings who've lived, and they look at what we have and what we can do, they would consider every single person in this room rich, filthy rich. We look at it from the perspective, well, I don't, I'm not like Mark Zuckerberg, or I'm not like any other rich billionaire out there, that's the standard that I compare with. But that is not the standard that the Bible talks about. That's certainly not the standard that humanity on this planet talks about. And that's not the standard that history has talked about. We are rich. We have to get that. And so all this, when this verse I'm talking about Timothy, talks about us. Every one of us. Every one of us. The other thing I want us to talk about was also that takes away from contentment, and it's really tied with greed, is envy. And if you go through the Bible, I love the book of Genesis, you get to see envy over and over again. It's close to being one of the first sins. You know, the serpent in the Garden of Eden told Eve, you can be like God. I want to be like God. Well, how does God get to call the shots? How come he gets to know everything? If you just eat that fruit, you get to have that. And you envy that and that treat. And then right after, with their children, right, Abel gives a great offering 
to God, and Cain goes, how come he gets all the credit, and I don't get the credit? He's envious, and what does he do? He kills his brother because of it. And then you look in Genesis 27, 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing for which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. But I will kill my brother Jacob. What a nice guy. You know, right now, okay, out of respect for, you know, my dad's uh, death and things, we're going to make sure the funeral's gone. But once the funeral time of mourning is done, he's going to get his comeuppance. I'm going to get my payback. And then another one that I liked was in Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. So it's, you know, there's no drama there, right? So, (laughs) you know, Rachel says, give me children. So Jacob, you know, he gets his his turnabout because, you know, he was going to get, he runs away. So he escapes Esau and then he wants Rachel, marries Rachel and, you know, doesn't treat Leah right. And God blesses Leah and gives children. Again and again and again. And Rachel's like, how come she gets all the kids and I don't? Give me some. This is not fair. I'm going, it's what's fair, okay? This envy, this root keeps working within us. And we can see that within ourselves, how we do that. When somebody else has something nicer than we do, do we want what they have? We're dissatisfied with what we have. He's got a nicer truck than I do, so I want that truck. Or I see that on the road and you look, ooh, I want that. Or I want this. It's this drive, this lust this desire, all through that, you get to see how Saul was envious of David. Saul slayed his thousands and David's his tens of thousands, right? And what did Saul do? He went like postal, like right on on David. And you get to see with Haman, with Mordecai, right? And then look at the chief priests and the elders and the Jews with Jesus. Matthew 27, 18. For he knew, he being Pilate, knew that they, the chief priests and the elders, had handed Jesus over because of envy. So right there when Pilate's telling him, hey, you want me to let go Jesus or Barabbas? The guy who's the killer, who's wild, crazy, and really should go and be crucified because his punishment would fit the crime, or Jesus, who you accuse. And they choose, oh yeah, kill Jesus instead of the guy. Why? Because they envied the reputation that he had among the people. So what does envy do? It makes us want to kill others. And we may not say, I'm not really want them to die, but we don't mind if they come down. So when we see somebody who's doing well, and then they fall or they lose all their money or all their stuff, they go, yeah, we feel good. We like their misery because we don't think they should get what they have. It makes us want to humiliate them. You know, we think that it's not fair. We look at that, especially I notice how people talk about those who are rich. Um, Just to give you some numbers, the top 1% of this country pays 40% of the taxes. The top 25% of this country, those who we think are rich because we don't think of ourselves rich, they pay 87% of all taxes, all taxes. And when you look at the graph proportion to income, um, really, they they do pay a greater percentage than those less. You hear the outliers, and you hear certain things where people don't, but in actual fact, they do. 
but we're envious. And so we think, oh, they're not paying their fair share. They should pay more because we want, because of my want, because I don't want them to have all that. It's not fair that they have gold-plated toilets. Why somebody would want to want a gold-plated toilet, I don't know. But, you know, it's not fair that they have that or their nice yacht and all that stuff. And um, it's not fair. I want that. It should all be equitably distributed. All of this is rooted in envy. I don't like that I have, even though I just shared we are better off than most of the planet, even though we're better off than kings were 100 years ago, even though we're better off than in history for humanity. Our envy, that desire that within us, which was at the very beginning of the garden, goes on and on until this day. The third part I want to talk about that creates discontentment is also connected with envy, which is I already shared a little bit about, which is entitlement. So we talked about greed, we talked about envy and entitlement. So what do we think we're entitled to? Do we feel entitled to have a nice family, you know, with the two and a half children and the white picket fence? Do we entitled to have a, a nice career, a nice home? Those of us who are Christian, what do we care about? Less about the material things, but we do care about recognition, especially for our sacrifice. Look what I've given up for you, Jesus. I'm entitled for recognition. I want my due. It's still that heart that shows that it's a wickedness that's driving folks on self. You know, those, um, our passions and our desires, our expectations for satisfaction and comfort our world, our, our, our media, every time we're on the phone and we look at social media, it creates that entitlement. I'm entitled to have what they have. I'm envious they got it. I want to have that. I should have this. I should be able to do what they do. I should be able to have these nice pictures of me laying on the beach, or I should have all that. It creates discontent. One of the big things I see so many youth who come... And, and they're riveted on social media, especially the young. And there's very good studies showing that those youth, the suicide rate is going up because they're discontented, they're unhappy, and it's connected to their use of social media, whether it's Twitter or Instagram. Facebook is for us older fogies. They're not on it as much, okay? But that's, it creates discontent. But even Facebook... You see all these pictures and everybody looks like they're happy. You see a moment of that. You don't see reality. It's like the whole thing of ad advertising. It's nothing, nothing about reality about advertising. It's all about this facade that you get. That's why you have this so-called buyer's remorse. You buy the car and you go, okay, it has that new car smell for about six weeks. And then after that, eh, eh, now what? I need something else to give that. All of that is rooted in those same things. So... Um, it's kind of funny. It showed up with me, and on Thursday, I, I, I noticed my own discontent when I was driving um, with a brother up to IKEA to pick up some dressers, and the traffic was a problem. Then we had to, we wanted to go to Madison Place, and you know I'm looking at the time. Oh yeah, we should arrive in time. And then we were like in a standstill. We arrived like 25 minutes after our schedule, and I realized I was discontented with the traffic. I felt frustrated. I wasn't. You know, um, living in the discontent that I didn't get my big trip to IKEA to get 
stuff didn't work out, and I didn't get virtually anything, a couple of little bags and a couple of little um, microwave cover dishes, but it showed within me where my priority was, how I was unsettled. Now, the neat thing is, went to worship, praise God, and I didn't hang on to that. That's the opportunity. We don't have to hold on to that. We can let that go. And I was able to go, okay, the trip to Ikea was good because I got to spend time with her brother. We got to fellowship together, and we got to eat some nice chocolate oatmeal cookies to boot. So it was good. But look at the discontent, and I think you can hear about that if you've read in the book of Exodus with the Israelites who left Egypt, okay? And they were discontented with Moses and saying, okay, how come God, who did this pillar of fire and cloud, parted the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, and you're wondering whether or not he's going to take care of you. But their grumbling and discontent, okay, led them to 40 years in the desert. What does our discontent lead us to? How much suffering do we put on ourselves because we are discontented? Look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet, envy, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul was very clear. Or actually, James here, very clear. You're an enemy of God if you're a friend of the world. So you can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. You've got to choose which kingdom, which set of priorities is more important to you. Our allegiance with the world and its values have made even more pronounced by this. As I mentioned, we have this with us. We have the world right here in our pockets that we carry around and we can connect to at any time. It's nice if you want to get away, not only get rid of television and internet, but take a phone break. It is a real blessing to do that because then you have to decide what your priority are. So we're not so much of it as others are, but it's really kind of funny when I come into a room and everybody's just staring on their, their, their cell phone. It's like, wow, we're all sitting, everybody's doing their own thing, and nobody's really connecting in community or relationship. Unfortunately, it happens all too often. So, what's the answer to that? It's having the right perspective. 1 Timothy 6, 8. 6, chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. God doesn't owe us anything. We certainly don't deserve anything, but we've been given much. We can be thankful for what we've received. We can be content. So let's go back to Philippians but let's go to the verses before, 9 through 12. 
But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what Paul is saying is it wasn't dependent on his circumstances. Our contentment doesn't depend on what we're going through. Doesn't matter the trial. We think it does because we're focused on the waves, but it really doesn't matter. Okay. Paul, where was he when he wrote Philippians? He was in prison. He was in prison. And he still could say, Thank you. I'm grateful. I'm locked up. He's the order. He's the guy who goes around passionate, wanting to talk. You think Pastor Jeff was passionate. You used to see, you know, Paul was like on steroids on that. Just was on top of that. And he had to be trapped in his one room. Talk about being frustrated from his natural giftings and talents. And yet he learned to be content. And we are grateful because look at scripture we got because God decided, okay, I know you're gifted that way, but I have another plan. And trust me, you may not see it. But that plan is so much better. And of course, God's right. Right? God's always right. God is always right. You have to remember that God is always right. We are not. He is. Opportunity for us to trust that. So, Paul learned how to be content. It wasn't easy. He learned it. And we can learn the same thing. We have to work at it. How do we learn to be content? Spending time in his word. Wash, being washed with the word again and again. How else do we learn to be content? Being among other believers who have the same value system to emphasize. Okay? I was with a brother who can show me. And he can tell me, oh, and like even one little word. Oh, you're a little frustrated by that. Mm, okay, yeah, I was. Just like, oh, I need that reset. Those of us who know about vinyl records, you know, when that you hit into that rut, you kick the stylus a little bit, then it would continue playing the song. So I needed somebody to do that. And I'm blessed with brothers who are more than able and willing to correct me when I step out of line. So God is that good. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 26. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So he reckon, he's saying, look, the birds don't worry about those things. When I was in Ghana, you know, I'm not saying that people weren't anxious and they want more, but they weren't fretful about it like we are. Their expectations were different. What's our expectations that we have? We expect to have comfort. We expect to make sure not only do I know what I'm going to do tomorrow morning, but what am I going to eat three months from now? And there's an opportunity for us to go, okay, God, if you've taken care of everything else, don't you think you'll take care of me? So 
It's having contentment is also rooted in who we have contentment with. Do we trust in God? So we learn it, and it's learning trust in the Lord, trusting that, God, you're going to take care of me no matter what. I have to remember that. Because he said he would. Because he promised he would. So there's a Greek word here in Philippians that talks about it's called archaeo, which means to suffice. Okay? God is sufficient. Paul knew that, that in all things, God would help him to suffice, to be content, to have all that he needs. We look at it differently. Contentment means you have enough, to have within yourself, have enough. And he knew that he said, and it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about I can do what I want. I can go and get this job because Christ strengthens me. That's not what it's about. That's not what that verse is saying. That's saying no matter what my circumstances, because I have this relationship with Christ, because of living in him and allowing him to work through me, I can do everything that he wants in me through his strength. Not what I want. Everything that he wants in me. And what he wants is contentment, to abound. Hebrews 13.5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is never, those who seek, and we seek him imperfectly, God will not forsake us. Let me say that again. God will not forsake us. He will always be there. He is faithful because that's who he is. The only time he did anything in the Old Testament to indicate where he would turn his eyes away was because when others were not seeking and he only did that because he wanted them. Anytime he chastises us is to bring us to a point of need so that we would seek him. He's always trying to work to cultivate to bring us back to him. He's always trying to cultivate the work to bring us back to him. Every day, every moment. He wants us to be an intimate, personal relationship with him. In all circumstances. And he's going to do whatever it takes. Blessings? Yes. Admonishment? If necessary. Usually because we're kind of hard-headed. We're kind of, you know, a little, you know, batty in the head. We don't learn very well. We're like little kids sometimes, two-year-olds, where you have to tell them again and again, trust me, it's going to be okay. Ah, yeah, you didn't, it's going to be okay. Wasn't okay yet? Uh, yeah, but this is different. It's not different. God's the same. He doesn't change. He's going to provide in all circumstances. Paul trusted that. Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And so challenges, I mean, I don't, I'm not perfect in seeking God at every moment of every day. I'm not. I don't know anybody who is. And there, I need to do better. And I, we all know that. But I also know when I talk to everybody, everybody who's worried that they're not seeking God is seeking God. Everybody's worried that they're not seeking God enough is seeking God. It's the ones who aren't worried about their seeking God that we should be concerned about. Because if that's in your mind that you're thinking, I need to press more, that's what God wants. That's what he wants. He wants you to do more. We don't have to be perfect about it. 
But if you have a heart, a hunger to seek, now, yes, should we seek him more? By all means. Should we press into more with him, spend more time with him? Absolutely. Will we get richly rewarded with an intimate relationship with him? Yes. Will we get more contentment? Yes. Why? Because we're having this intimate relationship. We know who he is. We can trust in him. Just like a child rests in the father's arms, as Ember is doing in Joe's arms right now, just comfortable. Ember's chilling because you know you're in the comfort of the father. Just like when my kids would jump off the railing into my arms. I'm thinking, is that going to step away? No, you're going to catch your kid. That's what he does. You catch your kid every time. You never even think about not catching kids. You're actually thinking, oh, I better catch quickly. Make sure I got him. Brace myself so I don't fall. That's what you do. How much more our Heavenly Father? How much more our Heavenly Father? So that's a trust that he wants. So, in the same book of Philippians chapter 4, preceding verses, 6 to 8, be anxious for Nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any Virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate. Meditate on these things. So one of the answers to our discontentment is talk to God. It's, what is prayer? It's a conversation with God. Saying, God, I need help. I'm fretting about things I shouldn't be fretting. I'm worrying about things I shouldn't be worrying about. Okay? I need to let go of these things. I need to trust in you more. I need not to worry about what's going to happen with this. I do. Let me be thankful. Thank you for all that you've given me. Let me list the things that you're thankful. Thank you that you've given me breath. Thank you that you've given me health. Thank you that you've given me the love of a body of believers around me. Thank you for the shelter that I have. Thank you that I have reliable income. Thank you for the savings I have. Thank you for the son that I have. Thank you for all the things that I have. Okay? And that's what he says. Be thanking, and then you'll have peace because you'll realize you have a lot more than you have to worry about to lose. But especially you have Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you each moment you're there. And then it says, think about other things. So you have to think about noble things. So it's what things we have to be thankful. Then we also have to decide, okay, I can't be, you know, you, we can't stop thinking. We just can't stop it, okay? The choice is, what are we going to think about? Okay, so... Birds will fly over. We don't have to let them nest in our head. Okay? They may fly over and you get a thought and get distracted. We all do. But we don't live there. So the choice is, where do we live? We live about things that are noble, things that are pure, things that are true, things that are just. Things that are excellent, are praiseworthy in other translations. My school motto is, whatsoever things are true. That was the motto, which is right from the Bible. I wish they were following it now. So, contentment is a grace given by God as we endeavor through his strength to be more like him. What a wonderful picture Paul presents 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, about the Macedonian church. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge you, Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So this church, we didn't have very much, okay? We're really poor, dirt poor. Gave generously and also insisted. No, 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 you can't. I, how can you give to me? I've got more. No, 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 we want to give to you. So they went, they pleaded, please let us give to you when they had nothing. They implored of him to do that. They were freely willing and they realized that they had this relationship. They did it because of their love of Jesus and the love of Jesus through them that they wanted to be generous when they had so little. That's one of the cures for discontentment when you think they should have been discontent because they had nothing, to give to somebody who was better off than them, that doesn't make sense by the ways of the world. But it does in the kingdom of God because it knows that God's going to supply and God's going to richly bless because they're generous in what they give. So these sisters and brothers in Christ had faith in God so great that it, in their contentment with their base condition, their deep poverty, they were grateful to give generously to the needs of others. They did not grumble or complain, but abounded in what they believed, in what they said, in what they knew, in all their efforts expressed in love to others. As Christ has done for us, go and do likewise. Likewise.